This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. And today is Thursday, August 24th, 2023. And we are excited. And when I say we, I mean Luke is back with us as usual for most Thursdays. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Justin. Very excited to have survived Tropical Storm Hillary. Yes, uh, a little wet. I think everyone got a little wet, but uh, luckily, no injuries, at least anybody we know, right? Not on our team. No Not injuries on our, on our team. Yeah, exactly. Well, we are excited for this hour uh, to help guide you through this interesting market environment. I think that's uh, easy to say. And we'll talk about the market performance in a bit, but uh, let's first answer our first caller, caller question at 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve or Justin. I would love to get your opinion about Otis Worldwide Corporation. Their symbol is O-T-I-S. They manufacture and install escalators and elevators, but the part of the business that I find intriguing is the service side of their business. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on the company and if you thought it was a potential investment, what you thought a good entry point would be. Thank you. All right, this is Otis. That's the largest global elevator and escalator supplier by revenue in the world. It has about 18% of global market share and it dates back to 1854. That's how long it's been around. And so it has a, a huge install base and that's what you're talking about is that service side. Uh, and, and that's 2 million elevators, 2 million plus elevators throughout the world. And so... It, there's some recurring revenue there, but there's obviously the cyclical part of it as well. If there's less buildings being built, high rises, for example, less elevators to be installed. And I think you're starting to see that slowdown. This last quarter, you had revenue growth, but before that, you had four quarters in a row of mid-single digit revenue growth on average. But earnings continued to go up, so it's be up 10% this year, up 11% next year. It's a very good business. The question is, Luke... At twenty mid the mid twenties multiple based on forward looking earnings, is that still too expensive? Would you pay above market multiples for a very slow growth growth business? No, I certainly wouldn't. And the primary reason for that being is just the operating environment for who their main purchasers are going to be, which is office buildings, apartment buildings, things like that. So I would expect that in this environment where we are still in this work from home area, where some, some companies are walking away from their office leases, where commercial real estate is really taking a hit, that a company like this probably is not going to be able to sustain the kind of growth that justifies that valuation. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to pay somewhere probably around market multiple. I'll pay for low growth and, and a good business and a market multiple, but not well above a market multiple. It's probably what, 20, 30% uh, above the average market multiple right now. And that would be my worry. So I think this needs to be somewhere maybe the mid to the, the low 70s as opposed to the low 80s right now. I think that's an area that would be um, pretty good support and at least a decent value at that point. But it's it's certainly in a downtrend technically 
And like you said, Luke, there are a lot of uh, broader headwinds here. So I, I like that you have it on your watch list. It's certainly on our watch list as well as it has long-term, very strong profitability, cash flow, modest debt levels, et cetera, and that, that services business. But you have to pay the right price and it's not here. Okay. Thanks for the call. 8899 chart, 8892 There we go. <laughs> is how you get through and ask your question on today's show. Now let's take a quick look at the market today. It was a decidedly red day overall, and the reversal really was in the growth side of the market. Large cap growth down up down about 1.9%, small cap growth only down 1.6%, and the, the value side down roughly mid cap value down about a half a percent large cap value down 0.7 percent but the broad market as a whole down well over one percent large caps down 1.35 small caps still down a little over one percent and you had the nvidia earnings after hours luke and that was that was after hours it was accepted well but clearly the reaction in markets by the end of the day was pretty muted because it pretty much closed flat. And when something opens up, it gaps up and, and reverses, we call that in, in the technical world, a gap in crap. <laughs> that's basically what happened. And uh, on a high volume, that's a very, very bearish uh, reaction. And obviously tomorrow we have the, the uh, Jackson Hole and, and Jerome Powell speech, and that will be a market mover as well. So do you think people were selling more on that poor reaction to really a beat on NVIDIA? And, or was it uh, maybe a fear that Jerome Powell will come out more hawkish tomorrow? I think a little bit of both. What you saw, typically what you see in after hours trading post earnings is the highest conviction traders, right? Because you go into a situation where there's incredibly low volume, mm -hmm. you can push prices around and spreads are going to be wider. Mm -hmm. So you have to be pretty certain about what your uh, investment thesis is in order to participate in that area. And so what we saw is when the market opened the next day, reality kind of struck. Mm -hmm. And reality tells you that at a $500 price per share, NVIDIA has to have 20% growth consecutive or uh, consistently over the next 25 years in order to meet that valuation. And so it didn't really justify what was happening in the semiconductor industry broadly and in large cap tech. Yeah. And uh, that was probably the catalyst for, for that sell-off. Whenever you have good news after the, uh, a, a stock has run up dramatically and it doesn't react very well to it, that's usually a pretty bearish sign. It means most of the buyers are already in and it can reverse rather quickly. And I, I expect that too uh, tomorrow. But most importantly will be that Jerome Powell speech and whether he comes out more hawkish or does he see the signs in the market where the 10-year treasury is now at the highest level in, what, 20, 20 years, something like that? Yeah. And does that worry them? Do they start to not necessarily hint at rate cuts? Because I don't think that they need to do that now. But what's most important for them is to keep the treasury market held up. And QT is not helping them. Keep, keep the treasury market held up, keep the financial environment for banks stable. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have maybe PTSD, post-traumatic summit disorder from mm -hmm. last year where the market had a big run-up in the weeks up to Jackson Hole and, and Jerome Powell just hammered it and said, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to mm -hmm. raise rates at a historic pace and we're going to mm -hmm. tame inflation. And then you know the market kind of crapped out a little bit. But I think 
all eyes are, and for good reason, on the comments that are going to hopefully come out of Jackson Hole tomorrow and give us some sort of direction. Yeah, and the question is, does Jerome Powell have some PTSD from not just the banking crisis in the spring? You know, they, they don't want a redux of that. They also don't want a redux of the guilt crisis and the 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 JGB crisis in the fall. And so does that get them to kind of wake up and say, you know, well, maybe we need to put a trial balloon out there. And I actually saw that today in Bloomberg mm -hmm. that one of the fed members was saying that QT might be wound down yeah. and that may be the start of their, their trial balloon uh, for ending QT at some point, not necessarily next meeting or even this year, but maybe that's their next step. Everyone's focused on the cut of the rates, but I actually think, Ending QT will probably be the next step. Yeah, the Fed is rarely ever explicit with what its actions are going to be. So I think the best that you can expect and really what we're hoping for tomorrow is some sort of groundwork being laid in terms of the direction of where things are going to go. Yeah, because they, they, they project these things far in advance. They don't, they're not going to come out of the blue and suddenly throw something on the market without some crisis happening uh, that will will commence in the next month or so right Correct. so they're they want to lay the groundwork for action and telegraph that at least probably three months in advance probably more like six months in advance and so if they're thinking about any qt by year end or early next year this is a perfect time for them to put those trial balloons out so that's what i'll be watching for at least uh tomorrow and obviously how the market reacts all right now that was the market today, but we still have about 45 minutes left in the show, and that means we're going to focus on a few things. Our main focus point is in regards to the consumer and what is keeping the consumer still spending and in control of the overall economy. So we're going to look at that data. Also, what's happening over in China and how they are using sanctions to try to dethrone the dollar. And we're going to look at some news out of the Asian markets, as well as bond yields overall, and will they ultimately take down the economy? And then lastly, if we have time, the SEC is starting to put the hammer down on private equity as well as hedge funds. So that will be interesting to uh, dig into as well. We also have some voice bank questions on treasury yields, as well as CAMTECH, C-A-M-T, and yeah, that's, that's today's show, but ultimately it's really about you. So your live calls are welcome or your calls after hours, leave a message. We will answer it on a future show. The number is the same. It's still 888-99 chart. Now, have you heard about the invest talk classroom series? It's streaming right now free on our YouTube channel. Episode four is up and we talk about deferred sales trust, which is a great way for business owners, real estate owners to shift assets into more liquid, more passive type investment vehicles and defer capital gains. Uh, and it's all over there on our YouTube channel. Now the phone lines are open, ready for you and your questions at 888 chart When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on 
JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to Taylor out in Philadelphia looking at CIVI, Civitas. You own it or looking to buy it? I'm looking to buy it, and my question was actually more framed around how do you guys look at uh, percentage of institutional ownership? You know, I've heard Steve talk about it before, but I really wanted to know, like, where does that factor into your decision-making process? Because what I had always heard was the higher the percentage of institutional ownership, the harder it would be for the stock to move up because it's already so controlled by large institutions. So by the tools that I have, it looks like CityPath is 96% owned by institutions. Does that automatically make it a no-fly zone, or how do you reconcile that? I'm not getting that number. Do you see that, Luke? On, on one system here, I'm seeing 54%. I don't see 90-something. I am seeing 95%. You're seeing 95% as well. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we're. I'm, I'm looking at the number of funds that, that own it. It went from 530, 530 in September of last year to 591. Uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's all about the trend if more money is flowing into the name. Uh, and funds, frankly, they tend to be, as long as markets are generally trending higher, money are flowing into funds. They tend to be sticky holders. Would you would you say that's true? Yeah, that's true. I think for me, uh, I care less about the percentage of institutional ownership and care more about the float percentage. So when you have a certain amount of shares, the float percentage is the percentage of total shares that is actually available on the market, right? So if you have a low float, that means it's closely held. That means that the dynamics of buying and selling the stock are going to be more moved by the fact that it's difficult to get your hands on it than actually the fundamentals of the company. So in this situation, what we're seeing is a float of 82.5%, which is really, really high. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I, I wouldn't really look at this. This is actually a name that we're looking to pick up uh, in the medium term, probably by year end. Uh, we do think you're, there's going to be volatility over the next uh, couple of months. So uh, we're kind of waiting for this to pull back somewhere close to the 100 to, to the 50 moving average. Right now, that's in the 71 to maybe 75 range, somewhere in there. And now it's at $79 per share. So uh, I, I like what you're looking at. This is a, a company that uh, we have our eyes on as well. Um, but the institutional aspect of it is, you know, it's us uh, pretty minor compared to the strong fundamentals of the business overall. So we like Civitas, C-I-V-I. Now we're going into a quick break, break, excuse me. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 in Silicon Valley, you can call now at 888-99-CHART. 
Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now let's go over to Philadelphia again and talk to Cameron this time, looking at First Citizens Bank Shares. Hello, yes. Hi. Yeah. You own it or looking to buy it? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I, I earned this. Um, I've earned it in the past and it's done really well. Um, I was actually gifted some shares not too long ago. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of become a bit large in the portfolio. So I was looking to trim, but it's been up like almost 100% on the year. So I've been kind of letting it ride. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, like I'm not great at valuing banks. So I wasn't sure like Still seems kind of cheap to me, but it has had a big run up. So just wanted to see what you guys think. All right, looking at First Citizens, and this is a bank out of, I believe it's here in Southern, Cal- in Southern California. Okay. Uh, oh, it takes no, deposits it, mainly in the Carolinas. No- there you go. Yeah, North Carolina. Yeah. Okay. And let's see, has retail and commercial banking services, traditional lending, deposit taking. So certainly a well-run bank. And large price, $1,300 per share, and it's done very well since the COVID crisis. Uh, I, I'm unfamiliar directly with why that might be. Why do you think this has bucked the trend of the rest of the banking industry? Um, well, they, they recently in March bought out Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay. They were, yeah, they had a big decline. <clears throat> and then once they bought out the bank, they I think they jumped up almost 200%. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, my understanding, it's a pretty well-run company. It's, mm-hmm. I believe, like fifth-generation family-owned. Um, it's like a 20% insider ownership, I think, last time I checked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it seems really well-run. Um, I like to hold on to it longer term, but I know you guys are pretty uh, negative on the banking industry right now. But since this bought out Silicon Valley, it makes me feel like they're feeling pretty confident about their situation right now but yeah usually those sharks that pick up the pieces of the crises tend to do fairly well and uh, obviously the markets reacted much better than to this name much better than the broader banking sector but you are also seeing some recent weakness in the banking sector as well so uh, i would say it depends on your time horizon i think long term like you said the the this is a well-run bank and the numbers kind of back that up and uh, they probably did enough due diligence to make sure that whatever they paid for uh, Silicon Valley, that it was uh, it was worthwhile for them. Luke, do you think he should just hold this for the long term? Well, my question is, what weight do you have it in your portfolio? Because you said you were gifted some shares. What's your exposure like? Yeah, uh, right now it's like twenty five percent. So I definitely was planning on trimming. It's just I was kind of letting it do its thing for a while. Yeah. No, I think one of the problems that a lot of people uh, encounter sometimes is that they tend to hold on to their losers too long and, and trim their winners too early. Mm-hmm. But just from a risk mitigation standpoint, 25% is a lot to have in any singular name, especially in an environment mm-hmm. where all of these ratings agencies are cutting individual banks' credit rating because the overall operating environment is trending 
down. So I think your intuition is correct. I think it's it's time to trim some of that, you know, and and, and recognize some of those those gains. Yeah, and the technicals are weakening here a bit. It's uh, hit the 50-day moving average for the second time since the banking crisis, and you're starting to see some of the indicators in the chart kind of roll over, and it looks like it wants to break this 50-day. Um, so uh, I, I, if I echo Luke's sentiments and saying 25% is way too high. And you want to be selling when things are relatively good. It seems like the market likes this purchase of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, but the broader operating environment for banks in general is just getting a lot tougher. And so you don't want to be panicking when the broader banking sector you know, has another leg lower. And this is certainly just going to go with it. You know, um, Even though it might outperform, it still could be down uh, dramatically if the sector breaks. So I would be trimming this name tomorrow. Yeah, you always want to sell something when you can, not when you have to. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's uh, pivot over to our main focus point, and that is in regards to the consumer. And going into the year, there was a lot of calls for a recession. And I'll, I'll admit it myself, I thought in the back half of this year, there would likely be a mild recession. So far, there's no indication of that. And the dip in consumer spending, which is roughly three quarters of the economy, is you know hasn't materialized. And if you look at where people are spending money, they're buying cars, they're still going on vacations, they're buying less furniture, appliances, and apparel because they bought a lot of that stuff during the pandemic. But the Census Bureau said in July retail sales rose 0.7%. And the, the Atlanta Federal Reserve raised its real-time tracking forecast for third-quarter growth to over 5% in the economy. Now, I don't, I don't think when we settle out in the third quarter, I don't think we'll actually get there uh, to 5%. or probably closer to 2 or 3%. But, um, you know, after the break, we're going to dig into the factors that are keeping consumer spending relatively robust and thus the economy, economy's head above water. Uh, and avoiding a recession. Now, does that mean uh, we won't have one next year? We'll talk about that after the break. Now, on the next Invest Talk, we will look into the story behind this headline Price data points to the 15 best U.S. cities for first time home buyers. That's tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888 99Chart. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally. First with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started.
For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, before the break, we talked a bit about how the U.S. economy has avoided a recession and mainly that it's on the back of robust consumer spending. So let's talk about the factors of why that is. Now, number one is pandemic savings. Still there. And Bank of America, the nation's second largest bank, says deposits are still 33% higher than were than they were in late 2019 pre-pandemic, and especially they they highlight the lower end, uh, which means the lower end of the income spectrum. And remember, those lower end consumers, they have a mar- higher marginal propensity to spend, meaning if they have money in their pocket, they tend to go out there and spend. You know, wealthy people, if you have 10% more in your bank account, 10% less, you still have a lot. You're still you're not going to change your lifestyle much, and so that's why those marginal consumers on the lower end of the income scale they tend to have a larger, much broader impact on consumer spending. And Bank of America said about eighty percent of the jump in deposits from two thousand nineteen to twenty twenty two is still in the bank. And so that's number one. People are still flush with cash. Number two, consumers are carrying more debt, but really not too much. I've seen this all over social media. Uh, Luke, and it's everyone's highlighting the record amount of credit card debt above $1 trillion and saying, oh, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. But what they don't look at is our, that first point, which is deposits. People have money in the bank to keep that keep that uh keep paying on that credit card debt right not only that people tend to think about things in nominal terms when you shouldn't be thinking that way so this is something mm-hmm. that you and i actually were just discussing today which is consumers broadly haven't really felt the effect of interest rates and why is that that's because a overwhelming majority are locked into mortgages under three and a half percent and they're not moving student loans are fixed interest and credit card debt is a lower percentage than what you would assume of the overall debt picture by looking at social media and the news. Yeah. So because of this, there's not a lot of variable revolving debt to which rising interest rates are affecting consumers. Yeah. And to highlight that point, right now, 5.7% of household income is needed to service the debt, virtually identical to the 2016 to 2019 levels. So yes, interest rates are up, but as you pointed out, it's not really impacting households because their income's up uh, overall, much much more than uh, the rise of their, their their debt payments, mainly because, like you said, they're, they're, they're keeping their 3% uh, mortgages. And that parlays into credit card charge-offs. Bank of America, it's only 1.07% in the latest quarter, still below pre-pandemic levels. Same with JP Morgan. Their credit card charge-offs are still below pre-pandemic levels as well. Now, the demand for goods 
has come down, but people are still spending on cars. GM had a 15% jump in unit sales. And the Bureau of Economic Analysis says consumer spending on new vehicles rose $40 billion in the first half of the year, with most of the gains coming in that second quarter. And incomes, most importantly, real incomes are up. And most people don't realize there's 67 million people that collect Social Security. $1.2 trillion in payments every single year. And every one of them had about a 9% increase in their payouts this year. That is a huge change. And if you actually look at the data, retirees don't feel the full effects of inflation typically because they're not driving as much. They're not buying as many things. Uh, their lives are just a lot slower. So their real incomes are up even more. And so they're feeling wealthier and people are getting money in their, on their savings once again. So there's just a lot of stimulus out there that's keeping the consumer flush with cash. Not only that, I'll do you one more, and that is that the growth in wages over the past year has been disproportionately towards the bottom mm -hmm. half yep. of this country, which is something that has not been seen over the past 30 years, mm -hmm. meaning that the people that are getting most of the wage gains are the people that are on the margins where they actually spend the money that's coming in. It's mm -hmm. not the people at the top who are not going to spend money. There's no difference between them getting another 4% in income, right? So, yeah. so that also is a big reason why consumers have been stronger than a lot of people anticipated. Yeah, and, and that's what we go back to, that broader, this broader point we make over and over, which inflation is likely to remain relatively robust because of the... The purse, the government purse is, is putting money out there sometimes in one-off packages like the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the CHIPS Act. Uh, and sometimes it's just more Social Security spending, more Medicare spending, et cetera, that's uh, automatically um, built into the budget. And so the, these type of uh, payments are going, like you said, to the lower end, and they're spending a lot. Now let's going to let's go to Pennsylvania once again. We have a lot of listeners out in Pennsylvania today, and talk to Sergio. He wants to talk about equity portfolio allocations. <clears throat> Thanks for taking my call. I have sure. a general question about equity portfolio allocation. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in knowing uh, what is the percentage that you think should go to international emerging, uh, emerging markets or developed markets. Assuming that, for instance, I get a domestic index fund, S&P or Dow, uh, you know, kind of a long-term investing. So if I want just an index fund of like a domestic and then what is the percentage of uh, international? And, uh, and the international should be emerging markets or developed markets or both? You know, if I get an ETF, you know, can research an ETF for those. Okay. Uh, well, I think the first question I have to ask is, would you consider yourself aggressive, moderate, conservative? How would you describe yourself and your risk tolerance level? Yeah, no, I would say aggressive, but like I, I'm not talking about like a bonds or other things, just yeah. like the equity. All equity, know, yeah, um, all equity. Gotcha. Well, I think right now there's certainly much better values elsewhere, but there also is probably higher risk than there has been in a while. You obviously have a war in Eastern Europe, you have geopolitical concerns with China and the potential fallout from their demographic bust that's happening in China. And so I would lean frankly on the developed markets. That's where there is a lot of, of good value. Uh, emerging markets, I think there are some select good emerging markets, but I would probably, the problem in my mind is that so much of the emerging market indexes, shall you say, are 
China heavy. And so if you can avoid China and still be exposed to emerging markets, I do like that area as well because the demographics in many of those emerging markets are actually good. Okay. Like Vietnam, for example. Uh, what do you think, Luke? Uh, 20%, 15%? Offhand, I wouldn't, I can't say an exact percentage, but mm -hmm. generally the way I look at it is take a look at the MSCI All Country World Index, which invests globally, mm -hmm. and take a look at the uh, weights there between international, US, and emerging markets. And that's a good starting point. Keep in mind, uh, you have, have said that you uh, have a higher risk tolerance, that you're more aggressive. So maybe you want to tilt slightly towards emerging markets, international markets away from the US. But generally speaking, for an ordinary investor, I would say that take a look at the All Country World Index, see how globally assets are allocated. And that's a great starting point for how you should allocate your portfolio. Yeah, right now they're 38%. Yeah, it's going to be China heavy. 38% China. Yeah. I do know that a lot of ETFs and mutual funds from a risk mitigation standpoint are going to country cap. Yep. Um, and China is the number one country that ends up hitting that country cap. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. but yeah, like I said, this is it's a great reference point for where you should start. And then you can make adjustments accordingly based on risk, based on... Uh, yeah, I think 30, 35% of your equity portfolio, I have no problem with that. I would focus a lot on the particular countries. Yeah. Uh, countries that are commodity heavy, I think those will do better in this inflationary environment. I think that's number one. And try to and those countries in Asia that will pick up a lot of the business from China as companies diversify their supply chains away from uh, you know a communist regime in China uh, and that potential fallout eventually. I think that those are the countries that are going to do the best over the next uh, decade or two. All right, let's keep things moving and answer another live call. This one is from Dan in Walnut Creek, California. Asking about precious metal miners. Hi there, um, Justin and Luke. Hope you guys are doing okay today. We are. We're hey, doing well. um, Thank you. So I've got, I'm, yeah, I've, I've got, um, I'm invested in four different miners: mm -hmm. um, SSRM, um, SR, SSR Mining, WPM, mm -hmm. Wheat and Precious Metals, AEM, Agnico, mm -hmm. Eagle, and um, NEM Newmont mm -hmm. uh, Corp. And they're all doing pretty well, except for Newmont. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, just in general, would you, what are your thoughts around um, uh, precious metal miners at this point? And um, in particular, uh, what's your thoughts on Newmont? Uh, I, th I think they, those are all quality miners and uh, they have pulled back since May on uh, a bit of a stronger dollar, higher interest rates. But if you look at generally gold, it's, they're going to move with gold. If gold remains in an uptrend, which it has been an uptrend now going on, let's see, it broke out back in the fall of last year. That's when the gold really moved uh, up nicely, broke out. It has pulled back, like I said, over the last few month, but months, but it hasn't broken any major support. It's still making a series of higher highs and higher lows. And commodity prices are actually broadly moving up. So uh, I think this is, uh, so far, it is a pullback to be buying. So I wouldn't be um, selling any any them uh, quickly. But Newmont is underperforming and needs to kind of gain some traction and start to catch up. Otherwise, uh, it's probably time to move to one that is performing, but certainly is, uh, it would be on the chopping block um, uh, for us. All right. Thanks for the call. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. Now, Steve and I have been telling you for a while that we are in a new market regime, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and a different operating environment for both companies as well as investors.
And so the big question is, are you prepared? Is your strategy up to snuff? And this is the time to remind you that we operate at KPP, KPP Financial with the same philosophy as we do here on air, which is independent thinking and shared success, where we provide unbiased guidance, both on and off air and parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting and send us a message through investtalk.com to line up that meeting for you. Or you can give our office a call at 800-557-5461. The sooner you give us a call, the sooner we can help you get your portfolio optimized. This is Invest Talk. Hang on. More answers coming up next. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need Invest Talk. Invest Talk is a free download, 24-7, rain or shine. The Invest Talk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. 888-99-CHART. Hey, Stephen Justin. John from Florida here. I'm calling asking about Pfizer. Seems to uh, be a, a solid hold, buy and hold dividend close to five. Uh, I like that they have a number of products, uh, not just the vaccine but uh, a lot of products and a lot of products in the, the pipeline. So they're not fully dependent on just one thing. It seems like a very stable company. Stock price is about 36. And I uh, wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, if this is a buy right now, or should I wait for a little bit of a pullback? Uh, looking forward to hearing your answer. Thanks for all what you guys do. Take care. Are right, looking at Pfizer, and this is a name that is down dramatically this year. It hit a high in December of about $55 per share. Now it's down to 36 and in a clear downtrend. And the big reason, earnings are supposed to fall 50% this year, from $6.58 last year to $3.30 this year. And we all know it's the, the vaccine and you know everyone has their own feelings about the vaccine. I personally don't think most people should have they needed to get it, but a lot of people did. Um, but the if you go back pre-pandemic and you get rid of the, the COVID era, earnings were struggling then. They made $2.92 in 2018 and only $1.91 in 2019. So their trajectory pre-pandemic was very negative. And so this is there's a lot of companies, a lot of these biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies, excuse me, that have patent cliffs and, and issues there. And so I just don't see any reason to jump in front of this decelerating and now declining business along with a declining stock. Uh, do you think it's cheap enough, Luke, after this large drop? Well, its relative valuation is not bad. Its price to book is is lower than the sector average. I would say, given the way that the price action has been over the past six months, a year, it's certainly not the time to catch the falling knife. I think one thing you have to remember about these pharmaceutical companies, though, is it only takes one new drug to make it go all the way back up. Mm -hmm. um, but in this situation, because a lot of the business is, seems to be failing, and certainly the price of this stock is showing that, now is certainly not the time to buy. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, You want to see some strength technically and in earnings projections. Earnings projections continue to go down uh, by analysts. And remember, I, I don't love earnings – or sorry, uh, analyst price projections of the stock because – 
There are yep. a lot of factors outside of uh, the actual underlying business that can influence the stock in the near term, but they're pretty good at knowing what earnings will be next quarter, quarter after that, next year, et cetera, uh, even if they tend to be more optimistic the further out they go. But overall, the trend just continues to be poor. And it did have, it did have a recent bounce. I think it's because of uh, a recent wave of COVID that uh, is, is, is filling up hospitals to some degree, but overall, you know, I don't think this is a name that you want to be, be jumping on at this point. All right. That was Pfizer. Now this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you, help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. Everybody's path is different, but the principles are the same, and that's what we are here to help you with, is understand the principles of good, sound money management and investing. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Hey there, Steve or Justin. Um, I have a question that I've always kind of wondered and have been trying to piece together an answer to. My question is about bond yield or um, mostly uh, like 10-year, 30-year treasury yield. How do yields correspond to price? How do they correspond to demand? And typically, like, why will they go down? Why will they go up? And how does that correspond to the market and to the price of bonds? And also, how does, uh, and to all of that, because I've read or heard that they can buy bonds, I've heard that there's a private bond market and then a, like an auction. So I just wondering if you could clarify that for me and kind of put it in context as far as how it affects the economy and how it might affect things like uh, the stock market. All right, guys, uh, appreciate it very much. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Well, prevailing yields in the market certainly in the bond market certainly affects a lot of other types of asset prices because that's uh, for the example, the 10 year treasury is, is the index for a lot of other types of uh, borrowings in the economy, such as mortgages. Now the fed typically in the fed funds rate market, they're affecting short-term rates. So they have a pretty direct impact on the short end of the yield curve. They have an indirect impact on the long end based on messaging, sometimes based on balance sheets expansion or contraction. Right now they're doing QT, so that's balance sheet contraction. Um, so there is some minor impact there. But ultimately, the long end, the 10-year, the 30-year, that's based on supply and demand. One of the reasons I think interest rates have been up over the past, uh, or, or the 10 years been up over the past couple months is because now, after the debt ceiling debate, the Treasury can issue a lot more uh, a lot more supply. And as supply comes on market, that means prices go down, bond yields go up. Remember, it's inverse to – prices on bonds are inverse to the bond yield. Um, anything I'm missing, Luke? No, I think, that, I think the main point is 
bond yields and bond prices are inversely related. So when you see yields rising, that's typically an indication of bonds being sold off. People are trying to dispose of these bonds. Mm -hmm. And typically when people dispose of something, they sell something. It's usually for less than they're originally asking for. It will drive prices down. Mm -hmm. Yields will go up. You can think of a yield as how much you're going to earn as a percentage based upon what you're purchasing something for and what the par value of it is at, expir at expiration. The par value being the notional value of that bond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oftentimes bonds will trade below par. Par is 100, and you can buy a, 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 a bond at, say, 90. It's still going to pay you the original coupon rate, say, 4%, whatever that, that is when it was issued. And that's going to be part of your return, that 4%, plus the appreciation over time from 90 to 100 when the bond matures. That could be a month from now, six months from now. 10 years, 30 years from now, there's bonds that are- Could be never if your company be, goes bankrupt, yeah, but you yeah. don't have to worry about that for you. Exactly. Um, so hopefully that gave you a broad overview of the bond market. Now, speaking of bonds, let's talk about China. And what's interesting, they're, they're using an interesting tactic, and this happened with Argentina recently when they needed to pay back a huge loan denominated in dollars. And what did China do? They came in and said, well, we have dollars. And we'll basically refinance that loan, but it's not going to be a dollar-based loan. It's going to be a renminbi-based loan so that they'll now have to get their hands on renminbi to pay back that loan over time. And I think this is pretty interesting. This is happening in Bangladesh as well. And I think this is a smart strategy by China to try to de-dollarize the world and replace the loans that are outstanding throughout the world with renminbi loans overall. It certainly is a smart play from that from them from an international policy standpoint. Certainly, the number one thing it aims to do is weaken U.S. soft power. Mm -hmm. Right, the primary power that the U.S. has aside aside from its military is its ability to sanction what it perceives as bad actors and take them out of the global financial and they've been using that more and more over the last decade or so. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, that's what they're trying to get around. They don't want to be part of that sanction environment, and they want to be able to to be able to operate this alternative uh, funding system and, and, and payment system. They call it KIPS, Cross-Border International Payment System. That's what they're trying to develop. It's still very early on, uh, but I think they will have some success at diversifying uh, their, their payments or, or their reliance, excuse me, on the SWIFT system and the dollar overall. But it's going to take... Their goal is not to be number one, but just to be a plausible alternative. Exactly. Now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And it's official. We now surpassed the 55 million download mark thanks to you since it all began. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.
Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.